B2C business, the blog and podcast for game changers and innovators in the construction industry. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the AEC Business Podcast. I'm Arnie Heiskanen and I have a very special guest, Phil McKinney. Phil is the founder and host to the award-winning Killer Innovations Podcast and now also on the BizTalk Radio Network. He retired in late 2011 from Hewlett-Packard as the Vice President and CTO of the $40 billion Personal Systems Group. He also oversaw the Global Innovation Office. Phil has written a book, Beyond the Obvious, on innovation and personal creativity. Welcome, Phil. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I, I think we have something in common, except uh, apart from be, being innovation advocates. I, I guess you also have a degree in architecture. Yeah, well, I originally I didn't get my degree in architecture. Uh-huh. I, started off, I started off to get my uh, architecture degree. And then I figured out in the U.S. it's a five-year degree program plus a two-year apprenticeship. Mm. And then you earn the right to earn less than a school teacher. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I switched my uh, my major to computer graphics, so that was my uh, that was my major was uh, computer graphics, specifically graphics animation, of which I have never worked a single day in that field. You talk about killer innovations. What is a killer innovation? Well, the the definition of a killer innovation is one that is um, distinctly different from anything that's in the marketplace. Two, you, your ability to do that creates a barrier to entry for others. So you have some form of true uh, you know, market advantage. And three, one that attracts a disproportionate value um, from the marketplace, meaning you get high acceleration, high revenue, high margin growth. So something that just, you know, killer innovation is one that just goes out there. It's uniquely different. You've got some unique capability to do it. Others can't copycat you very easily. And that three, you hit the timing right where you're delivering a huge amount of value. It really drives uh, really explosive growth. Well, yeah. So killer innovations are rare. They are very rare. <laughs> yes. All right. They are very rare. I mean, even examples of a killer innovation, you know, you could argue the iPhone, right? Mm. Look, you know, Apple, Steve did not invent the smartphone. But they, you know, they invested, it was, you know, something like four years of R&D work to create the iPhone. Um, it was a very small team, team of six. Um, they created something that was just, you know, very distinctive, very different. They, they threw out all the old models. And, and look, nobody ever thought of Apple as really being in the phone business. But all of a sudden now today you can't disconnected. So it was, it was, you know, competitive advantage. They had a barrier to entry that lasted probably about two years or so, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. They hit the timing right. They got a dis- disproportionate, you know, um, share of the market, both from a revenue and a margin growth. And now they're, you know, in the top two or three largest companies in the world from coming from the brink of almost going out of business. Yeah. We Finns also still have a trauma over the, the iPhone because... <laughs> yeah, the Nokia, the Nokia yeah. guys are... Yeah, the, yeah. the memories of Nokia are, are very strong. Yeah. Construction is globally an $8 trillion industry. As somebody looking at the industry from, from outside, what do you think about innovation and construction? How, do you, do you, what do you think when you hear these two words together? Well, 
I think the, the, the misnomer is is that a lot of people think that when you say the word innovation, it's always in the high tech field, yeah. right? It's either software, it's some cloud service, it's a mobile app, it's some consumer electronics device. But innovation has a role literally across anything and everywhere. Um, and we tend to think about it from a product perspective, but with the way I think about innovation in, in, in the broader context is really to think about it across really three areas. One is what I call the who. So how do you innovate to change or transform um, really the, the experience that the customer has, right? If you think of architecture or design or construction, you know, things that are along the lines of, you know, prefab housing is an area that I've actually gotten pretty interested in. I do a lot of work in in Africa, and we've looked at prefab, we look at containerized housing, where you literally either ship the house in pieces, or you actually literally use the containers to construct housing. You know, in those cases, you can radically reduce the cost of housing and serve a segment of the population that can't have access to it now. So that's, so the who is how do you think about whether it be construction, architecture, or anything you do, and really think about how do you transform that uh, that experience for uh, for the customer, and then the what is is you know what is it you know are you building single family housing, multi dwelling unit apartments, are you doing um, office facilities, etc. And how do you innovate around that? Whether you innovate the use of materials or the uh, um, you know the design of it to give it a different aesthetics or uh, create office spaces that drive innovation, which is one area that I'm still pretty passionate about and my current employees at my current location I have about 200 employees and I just I mean I think within the first year of me taking over as CEO I gutted the building and completely redesigned the office space so in the architecture firm that we hired to do I had to suffer through with me being my amateur architect <laughs> you know and uh, having very strong opinions about how I wanted that space but I wanted a space that really encourage creativity and innovation and collaboration and all those things. And then, you know, the third area I think about is how. How do you actually do it? How do you, you know, what's the, what's the processes on the ground? How do you, you know, in the case of construction, how do you reduce the cycle time to go from first shovel in the dirt till occupancy happens? How do you, you know, compress those times? How do you... Um, how do you do a better job of even, you know, scheduling and project managing large work crews? So that you get all the right trade crafts on site right at the right, at the right time, so the thing just kind of flows. So when I think about innovation, it's who, what, how, but it can be applied literally to anything, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's how do you run a classroom, to how do you build a building, to how do you come up with that next, you know, great consumer electronics device. Yeah, many disruptive innovations nowadays come from outside an established uh, industry. Uh, could that also happen in the construction industry? And uh, Or is there a way to somehow turn that uh, thinking into an opportunity that, that you can innovate from outside the industry or between industries? Well, one of the, one of the things that, that I teach um, companies that I work with is in many cases, particularly long established industries, you know, you can think of instruction, you know, my father spent 48 years in the machine tool industry, you know, you know, industries that have been around for 100 years, companies that have been around for 100 years in that case. The fact, though, is, is that the innovation may not occur inside, it may occur outside. And so part of the innovation process is, is to go out and look at those companies that are 
maybe similar, but maybe, you know, adjacent to what it is you're doing. I mean, in the case of the construction space, one example I just recently saw was where, you know, someone's built this big, huge, massive uh, 3D printer that's literally printing walls and buildings, you know. Didn't come from within the construction industry, came from the 3D printer space, and just someone said, hey, okay, that's two feet by three feet. Can I make that 200 feet by 300 foot printer and literally, you know, build a wall out of it or, you know, uh, lay, you know, a slab of uh, flooring in or whatever. Um, And so from that perspective, it's you got to be careful of, you know, you're in an industry and the industry's operating in a rut. And then so how do you get out of that rut? One way to get out of that rut is, you know, is, is to get a little bit further afield. Look at in things. When you say construction, what is construction is? Well, construction makes things, right? Mm. So what other industries make things? And so go look at other industries that make things, that physically construct something, and then figure out what are five ideas that I can take from that industry and apply it to what it is you're doing. And that becomes really then a catalyst. It's never going to match one-to-one, but that's where the human ingenuity clicks in, where you can look at what somebody else is doing, and then how do you apply it to what it is you're doing. One thing that I've been promoting recently is experimentation in, in companies, but I, I find that it's very difficult, uh, a, a very difficult idea to sell, uh, but it's also one very good way to innovate. Um, how would you encourage businesses to, to business owners and managers to, to experiment more and take a little bit risk in experimentation? Yeah, experimentation is always a little bit of a challenge, right? It really depends on the culture of the organization. Do, do managers and leaders have a have a are they comfortable with the fact that you're going to try something and it may not work, it may fail? Um, typically, people you know within an organization you know look upon failure as you know it's gonna it's gonna kill my career. Uh, you know I'm gonna not potentially get that next promotion to the next position, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it, it, it really takes both sides. It takes an organization and a leadership that gets comfortable with experimentation. And it, you, you got to get the staff comfortable that they truly can try something. And if it doesn't work, hey, that's okay. Um, but experimentation is actually very important from an innovation perspective because you won't know. You can't analyze it perfectly out uh, before you even try something to make sure you take 100% of the risk out. Because if you take 100% of the risk out, the odds of you having a really a, a game-changing innovation is pretty slim. Um, part of developing those game-changing innovations is that process of getting out there and trying it, stumbling, and then fixing it again, and then trying it again. Um, and so, you know, you do clearly have to, you have, to have a you have to have a, a culture of a, of risk. Now, you can manage that risk, right? You don't want someone to go off and do an experiment that totally destroys the firm. So you can, you know, box it, you know, so much dollars or so much time or, you know, you do the 20% time thing that's big in the valley. Um, but, you know, you've got to, um, you got to have, you got to support experimentation. I don't know how you do innovation without it. I remember from your podcast was that you had great questions that you you uh, you asked and and I don't know what you called them was it was it killer innovation questions but 
but uh, you, you have used questions, and questions are uh, very effective thinking tools, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Questions are actually, it's pretty fundamental to my, to the methodology, and it's really what's in the book is uh, walking through what, what we call the killer questions. Killer question, so these yeah. are the questions that really cause you to think differently. Questions have a very unique power. If I ask you a question, you literally cannot stop yourself from answering the question. So if I ask the question, you know, what is half of 13? Everybody stops, you calculate the answer, and now you're back listening to me. So by asking the right question, you can actually get people to kind of, you know, jar them a little bit and get them to think completely differently in a whole different direction. Um, now, part of the challenge is, is it is how you construct the question. So if I ask you the question, what is half of 13? Everybody calculates the answer and comes back six and a half. Well, in reality, that's only the first possible answer. There's a range of possible answers, right? So if I had written the word out 13, I told you what's half, it's T-H-I-R, first part, and T-N. If I wrote it out as Roman numeral 13 and you split it vertically in half, it's 11 and 2. If you split it horizontally, it's Roman numeral 8 and 8. So there's a whole variety of different answers. And part of what I teach is, is even when you ask really good questions, don't stop at that obvious answer. Go beyond that and really f dig in to find those non-obvious answers because that's where those killer innovations sit. Because your competition is sitting there. The, they get the first answer. They treat it like a math problem. They get an answer. They're done and they're off to the problem, which is versus sitting back and going, is there another answer? Is there another way I should look at this? And therefore, then find that non-obvious answer, which then leads to coming up with something that's truly novel and, and truly innovative. The book has about 48 of the questions. There's about 150 or 200 questions in the entire in my collection that I use on a regular basis. Uh, but we pulled out 48 that were fairly fairly generic, meaning not tied to technical, not tied to. Uh, particular industry or background, things that could be applied um, across a, a, a pretty wide range. And uh, and actually, we're in the process of producing um, a digital version of the card deck. So they have all the killer questions, and then it'll, it'll be out here hopefully another couple of months or so. There's also one question that I often uh, encounter, and that is that we, when we are thinking about, um, let's say, brainstorming, um, which is uh, some people say that brainstorming brainstorming is not not a good good um, method anyway. But still, you get a lot of ideas, um, but only a fraction of ideas are are worth pursuing. So, how can we um, find the uh, the right ideas to to uh, start working on? <laughs> yeah, well, the the challenge in the brainstorming process is is you know you. You get 10 of your best and brightest people, you put them in a room, you typically word the problem very vaguely, like, hurry up, we need a new product idea. And then someone says, oh, I'll scribe, and they write down the list on the flip chart, and at the end of the meeting, someone goes, I'll type up the email, and I'll send them around, and then, then what happens? Nothing, right? Because nobody knows what to do with a list of 200 ideas off of a flip chart. And so, albeit... You know, I'm I'm still a fan of, of brainstorming, but you got to do it in you got to construct the brainstorming session in in a in a in a 
process way that allows you to one focus what they're lo- what you're looking at. It isn't about a product. It's about we need to come up with a solution to this particular problem that that is a, that's a challenge for this customer segment. So you go understand that customer segment, you go understand that problem, then you go into the brainstorming session. And in the brainstorming session, it is about getting as many ideas that are out there. But the key step that no brainstorming sessions do today, or very rarely, is rank the ideas. So how do you get out of 200 how do you find the top two? All right, it's a little bit of a needle in the haystack. You can dig through it all you want, uh, but it becomes personal opinion. Is there a way to kind of naturally filter that list so you get the top two or three at the top and then um, all the rest? And therefore, when you want to drive into execution, you know which top two are done. Now, when I was CTO at HP, we would look at somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 to 3,500 ideas a year. Now, that 3,500 ideas a year boiled down to where we would launch two products a year out of that 3,500. So how do you go from 3,500 to two? Um, Well, first off, out of the 3,500, a number were duplicates or we'd get ideas that were just, uh, you know, you had to to violate a law of physics in order to do it. (laughs) You can kind of weed those out. Um, but we used a, a process where we would uh, we would ask um, five questions. We would get a minimum of eight people. We would ask five questions. Every person would score that idea against those five questions on a score of zero to five. You'd add up those scores, and then you'd rank them. And it and it's worked, you know, amazingly well to where you get the top two or three percent of the ideas at the top. You get a gap in the score, and then you get the rest. Now, you don't throw away the rest because some of the um, issues may be timing. You need another iteration of, of processor technologies or something. So you can't do it today, but you'll do it in a year and a half from now. But then you now know those top two or three ideas are the ones that you're going to go um, focus in on. And so questions being kind of core to what I do and how I think and how I lead teams um, we use questions also to, to ask people to kind of look at that idea and rank it or score it so that you can you can match it up against all the other ideas and, and discern then through kind of a mini version of crowdsourcing, what are those uh, better ideas? I'm, I'm sure that we can learn a lot from your podcast and your book and your coming books and, and publications. But where can we uh, where can our listeners find all this great stuff? Well, well, for the blog and that, it's over at philmckinney.com. So that's where I post. Usually I post once a week on Thursdays there um, pretty regularly. And it's on innovation and creativity and processes of how do you run teams or how do you recruit teams for innovation. And then the, the podcast and the radio show are over at killerinnovations.com. Um, the entire archive going back to March of 2005 is there. If you want to, you can you can go back. I did the very first show sitting in a bathroom at a Marriott Resort in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> and I've done it you know, in the early days. I did podcasts from a hotel in Bali to Bangkok to London. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I'm uh, you know I'm at that point in my career where I'm turning into a hermit. <laughs> <laughs> I have my studio here in, Colo- in lovely uh, Colorado, near, right near uh, the mountains, and uh, 
Uh, yeah, that's where I do the broadcast from. But Killer Innovations has the entire, and you can find Killer Innovations both over on iTunes. We're now also in the Google Play Store, so you can find us in the Google Play Store also. Or you can download it uh, directly or listen to it directly from the uh, the site itself. And we do show us live on Sunday. People can watch on Facebook Live, so just follow me on Facebook. Um, and uh, then uh, you'll get notified on Sundays, and you can actually participate and and join into the conversation with our guests. We take live questions for, via Facebook and uh, make it a make it a fun Sunday afternoon and share it with uh, people uh, all over the world. Yes. Um, as for a hermit, I guess you travel a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I still travel a lot. Not as much um, as during my HP days. I mean, everybody nowadays, my uh, where I'm currently the CEO, they always are amazed at how much I travel. I'm like, ah, this is nothing. You know, okay. I'm, I'm slacking off in my in, as, I, as I'm getting up. But uh, yeah, I, I do travel still, still travel a fair amount. But uh, it's actually, uh, you know, nowadays, particularly in the innovation game, a lot of people get mis- get the mistaken impression that everything is centered in Silicon Valley, and that's just not the case. There are some great great um, innovators that are in some pretty obscure corners of the world and uh and for me that's what really drives me is to get out there and you know find people doing interesting um work and and giving them a little bit of a spotlight let them tell their story and uh help motivate others to go out and do it well when are we able to see you in finland (laughs) well actually well I think uh, here at the end of June, I'll be in Warsaw, Poland. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'll be in Poland. I may go to Athens. There's a startup competition in Athens that I may stop in and actually be part of the, the judges there uh, looking at startup companies in, in Greece. Um, so I actually do spend a fair amount of time in Europe. It's usually kind of an in and out. I don't get to stay for very long. Mm. Um, but I'll be back in December. Who knows? We might. Uh, that might be... Um, an opportunity. I then will be stop. My wife and I will be stopping in Europe for a week or so before we head to Rwanda, Africa. We typically spend our December's in Rwanda. Uh huh. Okay. Great. Well, it has been a, a real pleasure uh, pleasure talking with you, Phil. And I wish all the best to you and your work. And let's innovate. Let's innovate. <laughs>